in the first four verses, and specifically we were talking about the, the end times and the day of the Lord and what is the day of the Lord. Uh, we spent two weeks on that. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and guidance as we approach your word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd enlighten our minds and open our eyes to understand your word and to apply it to our own lives in a godly manner. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, we saw a brief overview of the coming destruction in the, in the tribulation period. We saw how the day of the Lord began as a thief in the night, which we were able to determine from chapter 4, was the, the opening bell, as we might call it, was the rapture. And that's, that's the only part of the day of the Lord that does come as a thief in the night, is that beginning. We don't, we're not told when it's going to happen. Uh, everything else is choreographed step by step, and we may or may not understand it, but we can see that Daniel and Revelation and Isaiah and other prophets have laid it out in such a way that, no, there's no mistaking, this is what's going to happen. And in this general order, whether I've got it exactly right or not, I have no idea. Uh, but that opening thing, the, the uh, starting gun, whatever you want to call it, uh, we're not told when it's going to happen. That's why it's called coming as a thief in the night in chapter 5, uh, verse 2. But in verse 4, he said something that closed our message last time, was pointing out that we weren't part of that judgment. And we examined carefully why we were not part of that judgment. As we look back in Daniel chapter 9, we saw that the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel completely skips the church age, that it runs up to the death of Christ and jumps directly into the tribulation. And they go, well, what happened to the church age? Well, he didn't know anything about it. In fact, no Old Testament prophet knew anything about the church age. It was a secret. It gets revealed in the New Testament and first explained in Ephesians chapter 2. And we talked about that, too. Uh, two weeks ago. But moving on from that, if we are the children of light, as it says in verse 4, not in darkness, uh, that, that this day should overtake us as a thief. In verses 5 through <clears throat> uh, 8, I think that's where I wanted to go today. Yeah, verses 5 through 8, he tells us what ought to be the result. If we're not part of that group, then what are we supposed to be doing? And so today I'd like to talk about salvation and discipleship, the, the connection between salvation and discipleship. <clears throat> Starting in verse 5, he says, You, speaking to the believers, you are all the children of light and the children of the day. You are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, therefore, what do we do when we see the word therefore? We stop and see what it's there for, right? Amen. Okay, that's always a good thing to do. So on the basis of what he just said about us being children of the light and children of the day, he says, therefore, let us, as believers, not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunk, are drunk in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I'm going to stop there. He goes on from there, but I'd like, to, I'd like to use this as more or less a springboard to point out the difference between salvation and discipleship. 
That was not made clear to me when I first became a believer. I thought, well, discipleship and salvation are equal. In a way, they are. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you've placed your trust in him, then yeah, God expects you to function as a disciple. However, if you fail to function as a disciple, it does not negate the fact that you're born his child. Some of you have had children that didn't develop the same way as every every other child. There's children I've known that were autistic. There's children I've known that had Down syndrome and uh, cerebral palsy and things. And nobody said, that's not human. It's not developing right. You see, they were a born child of their family. They just weren't functioning, and it wasn't their fault. They weren't functioning the way they ex- the parents had expected them to. Well, in our case, when we don't function that way, it is our fault. We're making a choice to not walk with the Lord, but we're still his born child. In fact, the word, when it says that you're a child of God, and frequently in the King James, actually, when it says you're a son of God, it's actually translating the word technon, which means born one, offspring, that he's that the day you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you became the literal child of God, not some adopted waif that was dragged in off the street and told to, okay, wash up and uh, try to stay out of trouble till dinner time. No, no, you're his child. In fact, in 1 John, he makes it more clear. He says that his seed remains in you. You're his genetic offspring at a spiritual level. I'm not saying there's some physical change, but you're his real child. So, discipleship should be the, the automatic response to salvation. <clears throat> it isn't always. We have already been transferred into the kingdom of light, and the security of our salvation is based on that transmission, that, that change that God has taken us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of his dear son, is what it says. 1 Corinthians, 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says that every one of us has been taken by the Holy Spirit and placed into the body of Christ. You're there permanently. Jesus said, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life and shall not, future tense, shall not come into condemnation, but has crossed over from death into life. And the has crossed over, we don't see it real clearly in English because we don't use past perfect tense very often in English. When you go to try to redeem a store coupon and they say, I'm sorry, sir, that coupon is expired. They don't mean it expired that moment. They mean whatever the date is on that coupon, it expired then and it's permanent. Well, that's past perfect tense. And that's what's used there when he says has crossed over from death into life. It's something that happened in the past. Whenever you trusted Jesus as your savior, whatever the date on the coupon, so to speak, and it has permanent effect for the future. You can't go back. Okay, those are all true. Whether or not you learn to walk with him. Now, what we're going to talk about today is discipleship. <clears throat> Positionally, they're, they're very, very similar in that once you've been born again as a child of God, he does expect you to walk with him. You are called to be his disciple. You are called to walk with him in that way. But relationally and conditionally, they're not the same. Because relationally, yes, you're a child of God, and that's permanent. But do you always act like a child of God? Well, in my case, no. You know, he said he woke up in a bad mood. Man, there's lots of times I wake up in a grumpy mood. Anne's wisely learned to give me some time to get my feet on the ground, so to speak, have a cup of coffee, sit down, and kind of 
figure out what's what for the day. But if I start snapping at her, that's not her fault. That's my fault. I'm acting like a wretched sinner because I am a saved sinner. I have a new nature, yes, but my new nature isn't always what you're seeing. I can get grumpy. I'm called to full discipleship. We read that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, where we like the first half of Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that that God causes all things to work together for good, and we stop there. That's not what it says, folks. It says, God, we know that God makes all things to work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So if you don't think you're called, well, then don't try to apply Romans 8.28 because it doesn't apply to you if you're not called. And in the following verses, down through verse 30, it says every single one that he saved, he also called. We belong to him. He has called us to walk to, with him. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn, if you will, just for a moment. We'll come back to 1 Thessalonians. But flip back to your left to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. There's another one where we always read part of it and not the rest. We always quote Romans, uh, excuse me, we always quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we stop. But you see, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. That's supposed to be the result. The result of my being born again by his grace and through faith is that I am to learn to walk with him, and I am to produce good works, not just on my own. He, he's before ordained people to, to certain tasks, things that he wants them to do. If you want to see some really pizzazz type things where he told them ahead of time, this is what you're going to do, go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah wanted to argue with God, and God says, don't argue with me. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Whew. Man, I mean, that's, that's not even a call. That's a grab by the front of the shirt and yank to attention. You know, volunteer, you. <coughs> yeah. Isaiah had a little bit more gentle. It about killed him, but he saw Jesus face to face on the throne. And he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. And God says, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? Hello? And Isaiah said, Here, my Lord, send me. He didn't know what he was being sent to do. All he wanted is, if, if, if I get to go for God, I want to go. All right? That's the response God's looking for, not the way Jonah did. God says, go, and Jonah says, yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'll go the other way. And that's, you remember Jonah got the little water taxi trip? Yeah. That's how God brought him back. <laughs> we don't want to be like that. So if we see this, we see that Salvation ought to result in discipleship. We can easily say that we're committed to his service, but when it comes down to choices on a daily basis, we need to be asking ourselves, what does God want me to do? How should I be handling this choice? Does this particular choice actually do credit and honor to Jesus? That's where we put shoe leather on our faith. It has to become 
central question, what would he have me to do? Now, if we want to look at an example, oh, we're not going straight back to 1 Thessalonians. Go over to Acts chapter 9. An example would be Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul. But while he was still Saul of Tarsus, he was vehemently oppressing the church. And he went and got letters from the it says, uh, starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 is all I'm going to read here. <clears throat> it says, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was going to be a bounty hunter. Go, go get them, bring them back, and let the high priest kill them. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Newer translations say to kick against the goads. <clears throat> and he, trembling and astonished, said, Well, why are you picking on me? Is that what your Bible says? No, it says, Lord, what will you have me to do? That's discipleship. He went from an instant repentance as to what he wanted to do about Jesus because he was out to kill all the Jesus kids and recognized him as his Lord and immediately said, What do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city. It shall be told what you must do. We'll read a little bit about that later on. But I want you to notice the order of events there. See, we can use his, his experience as an object lesson for what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. If I apply Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 to the, step of, the steps that Jesus went through with Paul, Number one, Jesus shone the light on on Saul. Think about that as the gospel light. That's God's grace being offered to him. The grace came to him in the form of a blinding light from the sky and a voice calling him by name. Now, not everyone gets that experience. In fact, it was unique to Paul. Nobody else got that experience. But he was saved by grace, same as everybody else. <clears throat> Number two, it says, Paul responded in faith, saying, Who art thou, Lord? He didn't just run from him. So we see that his faith was instantaneous but untaught. He's, he didn't, he hadn't learned to believe in Jesus. He just was seeing, seeing him face to face and saying, okay, okay, I got it. Now what? He believed. He simply believed Jesus more than whatever he had believed before. And by the way, that's what faith is. That's what repentance is. Changing my mind regarding who Jesus is and placing my faith in him for who he says he is rather than whatever the world says about him, rather than what all the theologians say, rather than what all the philosophers say. Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. Some good, some bad, some are sort of right, some are horrible. It doesn't matter. What he says about himself is the issue. Do you believe him? And at that point, Paul believed Jesus more than he did whatever he had believed before. <clears throat> Jesus became his new standard. 
and the response of faith in God's grace was how he was born again that moment. The third thing is that the good works that God had before ordained for him, as we read in Ephesians 2.10, were pretty spectacular. And the remaining 19 chapters of the book of Acts are pretty much all about Paul's experience. I mean, yeah, there's other apostles to get in there too and a few other things, but in general, the whole book of Acts is from 9 on is about Paul's relationship with the Lord and his missionary efforts and all the things that he suffered. Interestingly enough, in verses 15 and 16, uh, Jesus was talking to Ananias, a believer there in Damascus, who did not want to go talk to Paul. He says, that guy's dangerous, Lord. You don't want to send me there. And uh, Jesus says, go your way. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Okay. I'm kind of glad that God hadn't shown me all the things I'm going to suffer for his name's sake. I, I probably couldn't handle it. I don't, I'm pretty fragile that way. If I get worrying about things in the future, I don't do well. <clears throat> but Paul got to see it all in all its grim detail, and he went ahead and obeyed Jesus. We grow in faith from the moment of salvation, and we start to learn that we're truly called to discipleship. There are no exceptions. Nobody is, out, is outside of this call. If, you, if you're not called to full-time service of Jesus, then you're not a believer. What I mean full-time, that doesn't mean that's how you make your money. That's not what I mean. I mean that 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365, and 366 in leap years. Uh, yeah, day by day we're called to walk with him. There are no exceptions. <clears throat> and we grow into a deeper understanding of that rather vague, uncomfortable idea because we think, well, yeah, I mean, but um, what's that going to entail? Just walk with me. We'll find out. Okay. He doesn't have to tell me up front. I'm glad he doesn't in my case. At some point, we finally fully agree that if he bought me and I thereby belong to him, then it only makes sense that I work for him. You stop and think about that. If you bought a tool, doesn't it make sense that that tool works for you? If you bought a car, doesn't it make sense that that car transports you where you want to go? Uh, if somebody else buys a car, that's their problem. That's their business. But if it's mine, it ought to be working for me. If I belong to Jesus, I ought to be working for him. I learned that before I was, a, before I was saved. I had a friend at work, uh, Rod Quila was his name, and I was disappointed when he became a believer because I thought, oh, man, he was a nice guy. He's going to be really boring now. Well, no, he wasn't. Uh, but in our senior year, I asked him, so what are you going to do when you graduate? Meaning, you're going to be a fireman. You're going to, you know, everybody asks those kind of questions. He says, I'm going to go into the ministry. I said, what? Why? And I tried to talk him out of it. He says, no, it just makes sense to me that if I belong to him, I ought to work for him. And I thought, huh, huh, yeah, I guess that does make sense. I wasn't a believer. But when I got saved a few months later, that rang true for me then, too. Right away, I thought, if I belong to him, I ought to be working for him. So this is the concept of discipleship, and it ought to begin immediately with salvation. <clears throat> if I belong to him, I ought to be working for him. And ultimately, we find ourselves involved in some kind of full-time service 
And I don't mean that's how you make your money. What I mean is that you're committed to this work, and that's what you do. Your whole life is pointed that way. It might, I, I told you about Don Cooper that I hadn't seen for 20 years, and on his deathbed I was asking him, well, where have you been the last 20 years? He says, I was a street preacher. He says, I, I went on the street and I told people about Jesus. That's what he did. He was a, like a fix-it guy janitor down in Salishan or someplace right close there in Lincoln City in the daytime, and as soon as he was off work, he was walking out on the street. His practice was to come up to people and ask them if there was any questions they had from the Bible they didn't know answers for. And if they said, yeah, what about, he would look it up on the spot, and he had a notebook with him. He would write down all the passages as he went through it with them and tear the sheet out and give it to them so they could go home and read it for themselves. 20 years walking the street and telling people about Jesus. That was his full-time calling. Being the janitor is how he paid his way to do that. See, for the first 20 years I taught here, I worked at Gunderson as a welder and a welding teacher and inspector and all those kind of things, but uh, this was my calling. See, this is where God had me. That's just how I paid my way to do that. <clears throat> Ultimately, we find ourselves involved in full-time service of one sort or another. I've been teaching for Bible for 45 years and was always self-supporting. Uh, until the last three years, I never received any help from outside. I always did secular jobs, just like the Apostle Paul did. You may recall that when they ran out of money in, I think, Acts chapter 17 or 18, they stopped at the house of Aquila and Priscilla, and his training was as a tent maker, and they were tent makers, so he worked for them for a while until he earned enough money for he and his entourage to go on worked a secular job to pay his way to do ministry. <clears throat> See, I'd never asked to be a pastor. I mean, I, I taught Bible because that's what I did. I, I taught especially young believers. I taught them to be mature believers. I raised them up as disciples. That's, I don't take any credit for that. That's just what God's Word does. If you feed on God's Word, it's just what's going to happen, like it or not. <clears throat> Some of those people went on to become missionaries, some became pastors and teachers, and, and that's fine. But the common thread in all their lives was this discipleship. I didn't have to mention that word to them. I didn't talk to them about discipleship. I taught them what God's word said, and they grabbed onto the idea themselves. See, in my own case, I'd never asked to become a pastor. But today, I feel honored to be permitted to feed the flock of God. I didn't ask for this. It got dropped in my lap, but praise God, that's the way he does things. You know, don't argue with me. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I ordained you, yeah. Okay. See, every person who's gifted to feed the flock needs to be ready at a moment's notice to go ahead and feed the flock. There's others among you. I, yeah, I'm privileged to feed the flock of God, but there's others among you that you know that God has gifted you in that way. Okay, what that means is that you are supposed to be ready at a moment's notice to put on your discipleship boots, go into God's word, God's sheep food bin here, dig out enough sheep food and get back to the flock and feed them. Now, if you prepared ahead of time and already had your boots on, that makes it a little easier. If you'd already been digging out sheep food and piling it up ready to go, that makes it even easier. But that's still what the call is. 
Now, last Sunday night, uh, Randy was saying, I got sick. <clears throat> I didn't know what was wrong. I was hurting all over and had a fever, and I laid down for a while and woke up just freezing, and I got up and told Anna, I am freezing. She says, Chad, it's not cold in here at all. You got a fever. Go take your temperature. Sure enough, so I knew I'm, I don't know how sick I am or how long it's going to last or how contagious it might be, so I called a brother here in the church, and it was Merrill. I wasn't going to mention his name, but Randy already did and said he did a good job. So, <clears throat> uh, I called him and asked him to take Wednesday night's Bible study in my place, and he did. Now, was it easy? No, it wasn't. <laughs> he told me later, he says, I was a nervous wreck, Chet. <clears throat> but I'm told he did a good job. He did it. He went ahead and fed the flock. It would have been easier if he had already had something prepared and ready to go. You know, one of these days, Chet's going to be sick, and man, I am ready. Yeah, it would have been easier, but that, that's not the point. The point is, he got up and did it. He went ahead and dug the stuff out of God's Word, and he came and he fed the flock. Now, for any of you that are gifted in that way, and I believe there's a bunch of you, then it pays to be studying ahead of time on your own, knowing that one day God's going to call for this to come out of my mouth, and I want to be chomping at the bit ready to go. When he says go, I'm ready to run. That's the way a disciple responds to God's word. But the point in Merrill's case is he rose to the challenge and he served. He fed the flock. Okay, so what's the challenge here in the book of Thessalonians? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we see a challenge that's easy to miss. <clears throat> I want to notice all the statements that are made in, those first, in uh, verses 5 through 11, 5 through 8. It says that all of you believers, all of you are the children of the light and the children of the day. There was a song with that title 50 years ago. We're children of the day, children of the light, and children of the day. You know that song? Oh, I see her nodding. I think, good, we're going to play it. And now she's shaking her head, no. <clears throat> okay, you're not of the light. That's the next, uh, night. That's the next thing it says. You are not of the night. You're not of the darkness. All right, how'd you get that way? Why aren't you a child of darkness? Because I was. I can tell you the truth, I was. I was an atheist, and I didn't know I was an enemy of God. I would have sworn I wasn't, but I was. God says so, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And I didn't know I was a child of wrath. God says I was. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that we were all children of wrath, just like everyone else. But now... We're children of the light, children of the day. So what happened? Well, somebody told me about Jesus. At some point, I had trusted him as my Savior, and he took me in hand and trained me to be something other than what I was. You've been born again as a genuine child of God. That's how you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of his dear son. That's how come you're no longer of the night or of the darkness, but... You're a child of the light and a child of the day. That's how it happened. Okay, and the big next word is therefore. He says, therefore, because we've been born again, because we're children of the light, because we're children of the day, therefore, let us not sleep as do others. See, our lives are not supposed to be just like everyone else's. You may feel like, well, I behave like that. I'm not going to fit in in society anymore. Yeah, you aren't, you're right, you won't. 
some of you know what it means to work in a factory and everyone around you starts talking about the wonderful party they had at so-and-so's house over the weekend. You think, huh, that's the first I heard about it. Yep, that's right. You don't fit. They didn't tell you. In fact, when my boss, who had always told me for 20 years, told me I was his best employee, when he retired, I found out through others that he'd told the others, don't tell Chet he's not invited to his retirement party. But somebody told me anyway, and I thought, okay, now I know who you really are. Say, you're not, no, you're not going to fit. We're not part of the world anymore. But the result is that we're not to sleep as they do. <clears throat> we have a new master. We have new priorities. And Jesus said we're no longer of the world, and the result will be that we can no longer hope to fit in. No, you won't fit in. It took me a while to get used to that idea. In contrast, since we're not going to sleep, he says, let us watch and be sober. So the contrast is to be a, cons a constant difference in our lives and how we see the world around us and how we respond to our surroundings. <clears throat> our sobriety and considering the eternal value or lack of such of the things around us is what makes us automatic misfits. We look at something and we think, huh, I don't think that's funny. You know, there's a lot of YouTube things of people slipping on ice and just smashing into the ground. People die that way. People are crippled that way. And, and yet they got this laugh track going all the time. Sorry, I don't think that's funny anymore. As an unbeliever, yeah, I probably would have thought it was funny. But as I look at it now, I think that lady landed right on her face on that icy sidewalk. This is not okay. I'm not sure she would ever, ever come back from that. Okay. And Ann and I knew a woman that died from it. So, you know, we, we start changing how we look at things. <clears throat> it says in verse 7, for they, I'm back in Thessalonians if you hadn't guessed. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunk are drunk in the night. See, it's, it's a part of darkness. If you've ever been in a bar, do you ever wonder how come it's always dark in bars? Some of them are really dark. I, I, I ran out of water. I was in Denver, and the, the radiator went, out, went dry. And I, I, it's the only place I could see that might have water. So I walked in the door with this jug in my hand, and I, I, it was pure darkness. I'm standing there trying to figure out, I don't know, I, I can't even walk forward. There's nothing. And over here, I hear a voice that $3 color, cover charge, mister. Uh, I waved the jug out and I said, I need water for my radiator. And he said, oh, go on through, there's a bathroom in the back. Well, it turned out the bathroom sink was too little. I couldn't get the jug in there, so I had to come back to the bar and have him fill it from his thingy, spray thing they use. Uh, well, by that time, my eyes were good enough to realize why it was dark in that bar. Yeah, it was a place I wanted out of right now. Uh, but there's a reason that they choose darkness. Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the world loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> and then what he says for us to do about it is put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now, what kind of a person is told to put on armor, a helmet, and a breastplate? Soldiers. Or if you're not, you know, a flat-out soldier, uh, if you're a disciple of somebody that's, that's that heavy a leader, I mean, you better be a pretty solid disciple before you just 
going to go into battle for him. You know, Gandhi had lots of disciples, but they never went into battle anyplace. But Abraham had 318 trained servants in his house, read slaves, that's what they were. Uh, they were trained to fight, and they went to war together with him. Okay, I'm a servant of Jesus. He's training my hands to fight, and we collectively are the army of God. I don't mean our church. I mean the believers in the whole world. Everywhere we are, we are shining a light. Remember Gideon's army? They had a torch in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand. What, what, how are they going to handle the sword? They weren't. They were called to do two things. Stand and shine a light and shout a, shout a warning. They stood shining that light and they blew the horn and they yelled, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's all they did. And the battle belonged to God. I'm pretty sure that's pretty much how we've got it too. We're asked to stand and hold forth the word of life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. And to shine as lights in a dark world. Same place. Philippians 2, 15 and 16. <clears throat> Every single one of us is called to discipleship. And we're called to be on full alert. God never says, stand down, be at ease, there's no threat here. You know, servicemen get told that. Okay, we're fine. You know, you guys can go on leave now. Believers don't get told that. Why? Because your enemy doesn't take breaks. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says that be sober, be vigilant for your enemy. The devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't say, take it easy, you know, I, I got my lion-proof lion fence out here. You can just, no, he says, be, so, be sober, be vigilant. We're called to be disciples 24-7. You see, the problem is we think we ought to be able to take a break when things are getting easy. And Satan doesn't take a break. And so we're most likely to get in trouble when we think we're okay to take a break. Can we rest? Well, absolutely. You're called to rest all the time. You rest in him, though, not rest from him. Some of you have been married and some of you haven't, but for you married folks, what if your spouse came to you and said, well, I'm going to take off for a few days here. I need a break from being around you. Oh, that doesn't sound good. That's, that doesn't bode well for your marriage. But that's what we're doing when we tell Jesus, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to my old way of life for a couple of days here. I'm, I need a break. I don't want to walk with you. That's our, that is what you're telling him. Pretty harsh sounding, isn't it? Let me put it that way. That's not discipleship. Discipleship means following Jesus. Do we fail sometimes? Yeah. And I'm really grateful that God forgives us our failures. But don't try to tell yourself it's not important to him. It is important to him. It should be important to us. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you'd draw us along as your disciples, as your followers, to walk in your footsteps, to learn to be the kind of person that you want us to be, to, to serve in your stead. You're, you're not here physically on earth, so we can be your hands and your feet and your voice. We can shine as lights in this dark world. You've told us to do that. We can sound the alarm. You've told us to do that. We can give the good news and the bad news. The bad news being that the world is lost and sin and judgment is coming. And the good news is Jesus saves. And we need to be able ambassadors for you. We want to be able ambassadors for you. 
and ask you to fill us with a sense of urgency, recognizing that time is running out for everybody. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.